0: Look at this! Mariners take the lead. Kyle <laughs> Seager. I get no. Hello and welcome to Matanzer's A Baseball Podcast. I'm Max Tanzer, joined alongside Ryan Medeiros as per usual, and we got Season 3 here premiering for Matanzer's today. It's March 1st. Spring training games kicked off yesterday. Some teams starting for the first time today as well. I cannot wait. We're just a month away literally from opening day on April 1st, Ryan. I got a couple games on right now. Uh, Red Sox and Braves, Yankees and Tigers. I know you got the Red Sox game on as well. Baseball's back in full swing, and I couldn't be happier.
1: Absolutely, Max. And as usual, you know, we got our third season here. We're excited to be bringing you guys baseball opinions from both coasts. Max on the West Coast, me on the East Coast. Right now, we're both in New York. We'll be in New York for hopefully until May. But we'll be bringing you those coastal opinions and covering all baseball from the whole country.
0: Yeah, speaking of coastal opinions, our Matanzas matchup for the month of February was very or was themed around our favorite teams, the Mariners and the Red Sox. Uh, we sent out a text to each other yesterday because we know we knew we were running out of time, but we wanted to save it till the very end of the month because that's when spring ga- training games started. So let's go over those prompts, then we'll share our choices, and then we'll get the results. If you remember last time, I picked up three points, um, and Ryan picked up two. So the currently, the standings are 3-2 me. Ryan still has an opportunity to pounce and take the lead for the first time this year. So starting off, the first prompt was Marco Gonzalez and Nathan Iovaldi, the two starters for the Red Sox and Mariners, would combine for over or under eight and a half strikeouts. In that case, I went with the under. Ryan went with the over. Unfortunately for Ryan, it was the under. Is Marco struck out nobody in two innings. Eovaldi struck out two. So I get that point right there. The next one was who scores more runs, the Mariners or the Red Sox. Interestingly enough, we went against our favorite teams. You chose the Sox. Alright, you chose the Mariners. I chose the Sox. This one was a close one right here. The Red Sox scored six runs. The Mariners scored five. So I took the point in that one as well. And then the last one was any ties. Were we going to see a tie between any teams? We both said yes in that case, and we both got a point as the Nationals and Cardinals tied at four apiece in nine innings. So I took three points there. Ryan took t- took one, excuse me. So the f- final standings at the end of February are currently six points for me, three points for Ryan. I'll say, Ryan, you still have a lot of time to come back in this as we have plenty of time left this year.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Max. I might be, uh, you know, kicking myself at the end of the year over this eight-and-a-half strikeout. So I guess I got a little excited. Fifteen minutes until game time, I delved up these questions, and I was having a feeling of Valdi and Marco were going to come out firing, but then I forgot that. You know, Marco really doesn't strike out a whole lot of guys, and Evaldi probably would be struggling with his control a little little bit early this season. Neither of them went deep in the ball game, and obviously that didn't work out for me. But I found it interesting that we both ended up going with the tie. I think it had to do with the strange spring training format. I mean, some games didn't even end up. There weren't even full innings completed. Sometimes there was innings that only had one out. Sometimes they pulled guys off the field. But, you know, I think it was... Interesting that only there was only one tie. I actually thought that there was a potential to be even a, a few ties in this because games were just being played so differently in this COVID world.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, there's even some games that are scheduled to be five innings just because, you know, you can't have the full 60 guys, you know. Uh, in the ballpark with you like they did the last few years or have been doing for a while now just because of COVID regulations. You know, you're you're limited on your roster so there's not as much pitching depth and so forth. And it's the beginning of the spring as well so they don't need guys throwing 40 pitches in one inning if that's the case. And it often is because guys aren't very sharp. It, It happened to Mark Gonzalez in his first inning. Uh, scott service pulled them off the field because he had already surpassed 20 pitches and there were a couple runners on so some high pressure spots for him but i like this rule a lot just because it helps out these teams we're not trying to see anyone get hurt Uh, and obviously with the regulations as well it really does help out Uh, any final thoughts on spring training before we move on here
1: you know max what i will say is i was keeping an eye on that mariners score to see if they came back obviously they're walking it off julio rodriguez driving in jared kelnick and we'll get into why that's so fitting in just a moment.
0: We will, we will. It's pure poetry. Pure poetry. We'll get into that in just a moment here. Let's get into it right now. Is Earlier in the past week, Kevin Mather, the former president of the Seattle Mariners, resigned after a video surfaced the internet of him talking to the Bellevue Rotary Club about the Mariners' upcoming 2021 campaign, where he released a lot of info ranging from money with the regional sports network deal with root sports manipulating top prospect jared kelnick service time his frustrations with having to pay translators extra money for foreign players there was a lot to unpack from this i was one of the few to actually watch the 45 minute video before it was taken down uh, in the late evening on sunday Uh, but this was very disappointing for me as a mariners fan i think it was embarrassing for the mariners organization Uh, i think it was a good move for Mather to resign. But the question is going forward here is if the Mariners can grow from this is obviously, you know, I'm assuming there's multiple people who have the same beliefs as Mather did as he expressed, because why would Mather be there if they didn't? Um, And it really just frustrated me. I'll I'll get your opinions on it before I share mine. Uh, What were your thoughts about it, obviously, from the Mather video?
1: You know, it was just really strange. Uh, It was unfortunate, as you had mentioned, but... There's so much to unpack that it's hard to really pick one thing out that was so obscure about it. Obviously, there was a whole deal with Julio Rodriguez and being criticized for his English, which ironically is very good, as you would mention. I know you'll get into this. For a guy who's so young, just came over uh, from from Latin America, and he's already speaking very good English. He hosts his own talk show, for goodness sakes, and... In in English and Mathers criticizing him, which was just one of the many things, you know, Kyle Seager being called overpaid just to name another. Obviously everyone knows that, but as the team president, you don't talk down your players. And that's exactly what he did. He basically spoke on how they're holding down Kelnick because of the service time, which just looks bad. Uh, We spoke about this beforehand, how service time has been an issue, but never before has it been explicitly stated by one of the team's leaders that they were actually holding a player down who was ready to be competitive at the Major League level right now. So those are just three of the many things that Mather said that were concerning, but those three things alone created some major turbulence across Major League Baseball.
0: Yeah, and why don't we start with the service time? Because I do think this is a very interesting subject, obviously, Chris Bryant and the Cubs back in 2015 vladimir guerrero jr and the blue jays some you can even point to the yankees with glaber torres i know there were some injuries involved in that as well um but what's so interesting about this like you said is that there's actual proof now on video that the mariners were trying to manipulate the contract of jared Kelnick to gain an extra year of control and look it was so obvious it's always so obvious but the mariners in this case like any other team Ray, we're going to have to come up with an excuse if Kelnick filed a grievance, which is going to be the case no matter what from what I understand right now. But their excuse, they could have had plenty. One, needs more at-bats in the minor leagues. Has really only played a year and a half or so and then didn't have any minor league at-bats last season just at the alternate site. So that's a big question mark going in. And Jerry Depoto still to this day is saying he doesn't think Jared Kelnick's ready to be in the big leagues. I would personally disagree, but I guess we got to trust Jerry in this case. But the point here is if... Kelnick does file a grievance against the Mariners. The Mariners can't really make those excuses anymore, or they can, but they don't hold as much anymore because there's actual proof now of the service time manipulation, as Kevin Mather stated. And I think Kelnick will file that file that grievance, and there's a good chance he'll win. And the Mariners will potentially lose that extra gear of control that they've been hoping for. And that poses the question for me: if that's all true, if the Mariners believe that they're going to lose this grievance if Kelnick files it, what's the point of even trying to manipulate it right now? Why don't they just calm up on opening day, show that, show them that he's a priority, show them that they respect him, because, look, that relationship's definitely a bit tainted right now. And an article by uh, Bob Nightingale came out earlier this week as well uh, talking about how Kelnick's been frustrated really the last year because the Mariners offered him a six-year major league contract with Team Options for three years after that as well. He declined. From Kelnick's point of view, he felt that the whole point of that contract was to say we either get a cheap deal with you and you get to play in the big leagues or you reject it and you're going to be held back to the middle of 2021 or at least the end of April of 2021, which I understand. Depoto's comment back to that was that the whole plan was for Kellnick to start 2020 in the minor leagues. And they would call him up when they thought he was ready while paying him that big league deal and having him on the 40-man roster. So it's kind of hard to see where to side with. But there's definitely reason to feel sympathy for Jared Kelnick in this instance and I really don't want the Mariners to taint their relationship with him right now knowing that he's going to be such a crucial imperative part to their success moving forward
1: yeah and you mentioned this briefly but I think the only way to rectify the situation is to bring Kelnick up Again, it's like we talked about this, and prior to even Mathers' comments coming out, we had talked about Kelnick whether he's ready to come up or not. And you've always believed that he's ready to compete. He's a true talent, obviously one of the top five prospects, the number four prospect in baseball. So this is a guy who has true talent. He's not. It's not like he's a teenager right now. Like maybe a guy like Wander Franco is only about nineteen years old, and it would be a bit. You know, early to bring a guy like that up, but Kelnick is in his low 20s now. I think he's ready. I mean, there's been guys younger than him to come up and experience great success. You look at Juan Soto, for example. So I think Kelnick, the age isn't an issue. The experience certainly isn't an issue. I know he hasn't played above double A yet, but he's gotten that amount of major league experience or, or that uh, experience at the minor league or the alternate training site, rather. he's he's proven that he's able to handle major league quality pitching. I know those guys at the alternate training site weren't on the roster, but he's faced big league pitching in spring training. He's had success there. We saw Chris Bryant, obviously another example of service time manipulation where he just went off in spring training and still got held down. Kelnick I think could have the best spring training ever, and they were going to come back to that excuse that, oh, he's not, uh, ready we want to give them more experience in the minor leagues but now that Mathers come out and said that they were going to hold him down no matter what now it just looks bad now you can't come back to that excuse because now it just looks like a lie because you already heard the president say that they were going to hold him down no matter what so again like I said the only way I think for them to rectify the situation is to bring him up admit that you were wrong and just try to move on from there
0: exactly and to grow i think you know technically speaking it is legal because the cba negotiations the last ones allowed for this loophole to happen so there are a lot of people out there who are upset with the mariners right now saying the mariners are corrupt or whatever you're going to say which i think is a little too extreme any organization in major league Baseball, at least the majority to my knowledge would probably be doing the same And that's been proven by the amount of times it's happened in the past here but i think the mariners need to move on from this at this point I think they do need to rectify it by calling him up on opening day, because, look, Jake Fraley, I think, deserves an opportunity more than anyone. The poor guy has been held back by the flux of outfield prospects the Mariners have had. But being realistic here, Jared Kelnick is the future of the Mariners, not quite Jake Fraley as much. And while I'd like to see him get an opportunity, at least at the beginning of the season, I don't know at this point what do you prioritize. I think you have to with Kelnick. And just to make it clear for those of you who are listening that don't understand how the service time work, service time system works, basically, uh If Kelnick was called up on opening day, he would then surpass the 172 days on the active roster, which would then mean that he gains one year of service time, which would then mean the Mariners don't get him for that extra year, versus if they wait into the season three weeks about, it would be physically impossible for him to surpass 172 days on that roster, and therefore they would gain an extra year of service.
1: Yeah, and the bottom line is for front offices, while it sucks for the fans and it sucks for the players, it is a good strategy for for front offices to do this because it allows them to retain these star players for an extra year, which is huge for the franchise. But I think the bottom line is it's tough to blame the front offices for this. Obviously, Mather going out and explicitly saying it, it makes him look like an idiot, and he's the one who you know, takes the takes the brunt of the situation. But the bottom line is it's a flawed system and one that needs to be addressed sooner rather than later.
0: Yeah, and in terms of just morality, that might be not the perfect term in this case. But, you know, these are your players. These are your employees. This is a guy who's going to make the Mariners a ton of money, a guy they're going to market the hell out of, and it's going to be a huge piece to the success of the organization moving forward. And... You know, disrespect might not be the right word, but I think it is a little bit disrespecting him. You know, I don't think you want to do that to a guy like that, and good for him for speaking up about it. I think there's plenty of players out there who are upset about it, but keep it behind closed doors. But Kalnick's been very vocal about it, obviously went to Bob Nightingale, and I do respect that because this is his life, this is his career, and he wants to make a change for it. So I don't blame him at all for that. Um, Let's move on now towards the other comments that Kevin Mather made. This was the part that really frustrated me, was the comments on both Hisashi Iwakuma and Julio Rodriguez. Talked about Hisashi Iwakuma, who's now coming back as an instructor during spring training for the Mariners, and saying how Hisashi always had a uh, translator when he was playing for the Mariners, and he didn't want to pay for that translator again while he was coaching because it's about $75,000. First of all, $75,000 in the grand scheme of things should not be too much for the Mariners. Second of all, I would ask Kevin Mather, how would you feel going to Japan or going to another country not being able to speak that language? And that's your career, and you're communicating with a bunch of people who, generally speaking, are fluent in English. That's intimidating, difficult, makes your career on the field that much harder. I think it's absolutely necessary for any player to have a translator if that's something that they need. And then the audacity to go criticize Julio Rodriguez I believe that this was a meeting, Ryan, to market the Mariners, right? It was a rotary club with a bunch of wealthy people who I think he was trying to sell at least tickets to, if not season tickets to. And he went out, and they asked him about Julio Rodriguez, and the first thing that comes to his head is that he can't speak English well? Like, are you kidding me? This is one of the top, most premier prospects in Major League Baseball. So promising uh, is the future of your franchise, just like Jared Kelnick. He could have said so many things. Talk about Julio's fantastic infectious personality or just the raw talent that he portrays on field but the first thing that comes to his head is that he doesn't speak english well which as you alluded to isn't even correct here go look on youtube right now type in vibing with j-rod go to the mariners youtube channel you'll see plenty of videos of julio rodriguez speaking english and it's fantastic you would think this guy's been speaking english for his entire life but no he's been in america for four years he's 20 years old how is that the thing that comes to his head first how is that how, how is he criticizing him for that? It baffles me. It disgusts me. It's incredibly disappointing. And Julio's been very gracious about it, obviously, on Twitter. He tweeted out a meme, the Michael Jordan meme and so forth. Uh, but he's had, a, he's had a good response to it, and I respect that a lot because you know, I wouldn't blame him if he acted out a little bit more because that's incredibly disrespectful. And just a slap in the face to all the work he's put in, both on and off the field.
1: Yeah, Max, and the other side of this that's unfortunate for your entire organization is if you're a free agent, for example, the next Ichiro, the next Iwakuma, the next Otani going to sign with an American uh, team over here in Major League Baseball, are you gonna come to the Mariners now if it comes down to a tiebreaker here with the comments that Mather made? And I understand he's no longer there, but that might be the deciding factor that leads these guys to sign elsewhere. I don't know, because like you said, if Mather's been here this whole time, is this an organizational type of mindset? Again, Mather is the president of the organization. You'd have to believe that he represents the organization's thought process. So if he's coming out with these racist comments, cause let's be real here, that's exactly what this is. What he said about Rodriguez simply wasn't true. So, I mean, there's no really other way to look at it there. The thing with Iwakuma, like you said, it is difficult to come over and learn a new language. I understand his annoyance with it potentially because no, no, I'm not even going to, I'm not going to go there because I, it, the bottom line is yes, it would be helpful if everyone spoke the same language in terms of communication that is in a perfect world, but he's just denying the fact that it's difficult for these guys and it's not easy. That's the bottom line. It's not easy. And he's failing to recognize that. And that's why he's gone now.
0: No doubt. Yep. And I think it was the right move to let him go or for him to leave. And, you know, what really disappointed me, too, and I've said this thousands of times in the show the last few months, I know you know it better than anyone, is that I have always believed that the Mariners have been able to build a really strong culture in that clubhouse throughout the entirety of the organization at every single level. I think Jerry Depoto, Andy McKay, Scott Service, and that entire crew have worked so hard on that. And you know, potentially could be that the Mariners have marketed it very well, but I don't think that's true. I think this is separate from the baseball operations, guys. And I really hope that they can keep that going because I think that's going to be super important. It always reminds me of what the 2014 15 Royals team had, right? They all came up together. They loved each other. Same sort of thing you have with a Chris Bryant and an Anthony Rizzo and that core as well. Javier Baez and so forth. They came up through the organization. They know each other. They've won together through every single level. And the Mariners are building something just like that. And I really hope this doesn't taint that. And Marco Gonzalez came out to the media earlier in the week and said, you know, maybe having a common enemy is gonna be better for them. And I love that attitude. I think that's a fantastic attitude for a leader on the team who was called boring by Kevin Mather. And why are you calling the ace of your dang team boring? Because first of all Marco Gonzalez is not. Sure he's a stoic and maybe a little bit more on the choir side quiet side excuse me. But when it's a big situation and Marco picks up a big strikeout or induces a big double play ball, the dude's pounding his chest off the mound, you know, and I love that. That's not boring right there. I don't even know where that came from as well. Uh, I like the attitude this team has I still think they have a good culture I don't think this relates to Depoto service or any of those guys at all
1: no and what this shows me is that the president of the team Mather did not know his players which sounds really strange coming right. from the president you know the leader of the organization so to speak but he just didn't know his players he's talking about Rodriguez not speaking great English well you don't know Julio clearly even because he Luis
0: does Ter's name right he called the yeah Luis again I'm
1: another example yes in the way you know he denounced the fact that Kyle Seager and you know talked about him being overpaid and said he's going to be gone you know that's a guy who's been the leader of your team for the past almost decade he's been a huge part of your franchise he's the current active war leader of the Mariners if you guys didn't know that but i mean that's a guy who's put a huge part in the Mariners franchise and you're going to go out and say he's overpaid yes you know if you look at the production you look at his salary sure he's overpaid but you're not going to denounce it's not, that's like imagine, you know, the Red Sox leadership coming out and saying, oh, Dustin Pedroia is overpaid. You know, that's not going to be a great look no matter who it is. You're just going to rile up the fan base. You're going to rile up the players. You respect the players that have done things for your team, and you respect the, your future players, and he did not do that for either side. And again, that's why he's gone.
0: Yeah, two things on the Seager thing. One... You know He's still on the team. He's still being paid by the team. The Mariners expect him to start at third base this year. Why in the world would you say that? Uh, Two, Kyle Seager is an incredible leader in that club. As everyone loves him, the players are going to side with Kyle Seager in this case no matter what. So Mather in that situation is already cornering himself. I don't understand the logic behind saying any of this stuff. And the most comical part, if you can even call it comical, is that He wasn't asked half of these things. He voluntarily said it. His opening statement was quite dense, and half the stuff he said wasn't asked for. He just went out and said it on a free limb, which was crazy to me. It almost seemed like... You know, he felt like he had power and he had some interesting content to tell these people. And he liked that and that satisfied him. And look, sure, you got that satisfaction for about 45 minutes, but it ultimately ultimately cost you your job and your reputation in this city that you've been representing for the last 20, 30 years. And, you know, it's it, I, I can't even put into words how frustrated I am. It made me sick to my stomach the entire week. I'm glad it's starting to seem like it's patched up a little bit here and that the Mariners have a good attitude about it talking about the players and they're moving forward uh, but yeah uh, disgusted is the best way to put it for me
1: yeah and it reminds me just of some guy sitting around the campfire having a couple brewskis with his buddies and talking about all these people saying stuff that probably isn't true just trying to get a rise out of exactly. his friends and just trying to act like he's cool but You know, like you said, you always got to be aware that you're on film, you're on camera, not that it's ever excusable to say these things when there's not a camera on, but it just goes to show that people in leadership positions always have to tread carefully and can never assume that what they're saying isn't going to come back to bite them.
0: Absolutely true. No doubt about that. All righty, let's move on from that. Hopefully the Mariners can push forward from this and only go up from here. Let's talk about a division that is definitely on the up and up right now, the National League East arguably the best division in baseball right now when you have the combination of the Braves, Mets, Phillies, Nationals, and the Marlins who did break their playoff drought last year. Let's go through the standings. We're going to share our predictions. Last week it was the American League East, obviously now the National League East. Ryan, what's your predictions for the National League East?
1: Here's my prediction. I think there's two really interesting races in this division and that is the Braves and Mets and I have them at that order at the top of the division. I have Braves again at the top of the division. And Phillies and Nationals, who I have in third and fourth respectively, I think that'll be a close matchup for third. And then lastly, the Marlins, yes, they did break their playoff drought, but I think their production, especially that run differential, was unsustainable for a winning record.
0: Well, unfortunately for the entertainment factor of this show, I have the exact same standings, which is disappointing. No arguments today. But, yeah, let's let's dig into it right here. Why did we have the Braves over the Mets? For me, this was very difficult because both offenses are great, both rotations are great, but we've touched on it a bit the last couple weeks here. I think the Braves' starting rotational depth that kind of bleeds into their bullpen is what they have over the Mets in this situation because you could go flip-flop the lineup in both cases right now. Freeman, Alonzo both are great freeman obviously coming off the mvp Alon's a little bit of a down year but you got to expect he's going to bounce back then you got your acuna zuna and then you could argue okay francisco lindor dominic smith michael conforto so i'd say it's very close to even in that case so i look these teams are going to be facing each other 19 times a year so that's probably going to be the decider in this division this year and i do think the pitching depth is the big separator i mean look at it i'll let you get into it too but their rotation is probably going to be Soroka, Freed, Morton, Anderson, Smiley, and then you have plenty of other guys like Wright and Wilson who slip right into the bullpen who probably will have really good stuff to play in the bullpen as well.
1: You know, and I will say, I'll argue with you a little bit okay. just again to okay. provide a little bit of entertainment here. I think the Mets rotation is a little bit underlooked here in this case. I think the Braves have a lot more young pitching, and I think their prospects, even we've overlooked people, uh, some of their young arms, they're always churning out arms, but the Mets... Again, we look, DeGrom, Carrasco, that one too is dominant. I think that's way better than the top of the rotation for the Braves, even though Freed was fantastic last year. Look at Stroman, that's a solid three starter right there. And then the bottom of rotation with Peterson, who was very good last year. You have Walker now added in. Lucchese going to be there. And Cindergaard's coming at, back at some points. So that's seven very viable, above average, arguably, starting pitchers right there. So the Mets have some good rotation depth themselves. And I think both bullpens are really interesting as well.
0: The bullpens are interesting, especially the Mets adding May. I think that's a huge piece for them. Lugo, who's hurt, hopefully will be back soon. And May-ish or so forth. The only concern I have with the Mets rotation, and again, this is an if, so you can't put too much on this. But there are a lot of injury questions in here when you look at a Taiwan Walker who's literally only started 13 games in the past two years. Syndergaard, of course, will be a question mark as well. You got to hope he can bounce back too. Um, Stroman, obviously, TJ in the past as well, or it was the ACL, excuse me, in the past. I don't think that should be too much of an issue though. So the health is definitely a question mark for me. And then if you look at the bullpen depth, I think that the Mets might have more dominant arms, but I don't know what the ceiling is for them because you have Diaz and May who are going to be dominant, two of the best uh, hard-throwing relievers in the game, in my opinion. Lugo should be solid when healthy. But then you get to the question marks of Familia and Batances, and if those guys pan out well, I think it's great, but I don't think there's too much more than that versus if you look at the Braves in this case. They're going to bring Martin back, Smith back, of course, Wright and Wilson. Like you said, they're young, so it's a question mark, but I think they'll perform better in the pen than if you were to just throw them in the rotation right now just because it's a smaller amount of a dosage of innings. And then Minter as well, who was fantastic last year. So I just think it's a little bit deeper in that case if I were to compare the two.
1: Yeah, I think last year it wasn't even close. The Mets obviously struggled in their bullpen. Diaz was a lot better last year than people thought. Definitely. But uh, the other options I think were a little shaky. You forget too, they have Miguel Castro who throws upper 90s. I think he's a really interesting option. They have some other guys, Aaron Loop. Don't sleep on him. Yeah. those small additions can be nice for the back end. I think Jacob Barnes is a guy who could bounce back. but the Braves bullpen got a lot weaker so I think this gap is narrowed. I still think like you said the Braves bullpen's better. They have some of those more proven arms and guys who are a little less volatile. So I think if you were to bank on which bullpen will be better this year, I think the Braves is a fine guess there. But they did lose Melanson. They lost Shane Green. Or Shane Green, I believe, is still a free agent if I'm not mistaken. But uh, those are two big losses for their bullpen. So I think that gap shrunk a lot. I still think the Braves lineup's a little bit better, arguably maybe. I think you said it's super close there. Again, I have both these teams very close. If I were to guess for win I I, I I think it would be arguable to say that The uh, Braves and Mets could each win about 95 games and be really close there at the top of the division. Both ball clubs are really well-rounded.
0: Definitely. I want to make something clear. I feel like I was being very hard on the Mets, and that was only the case in arguing that the Braves are going to be better than them this year. But I would not be surprised if the Mets outplay the Braves this year and win this division. It's a tremendous team. Uh, I got to give Steve Cohen a ton of credit just because he went out there and filled the holes they needed, shortstop, at a bullpen piece. Obviously, maybe they didn't get George Springer for the outfield, but I don't think that was as important and as a glaring of an issue as some people made it. They went and got a catcher as well, and uh, James McCann. So they did a tremendous job. I think they'll be fantastic. I think they'll make the playoffs for sure, and I definitely think there's a strong case for both of these teams winning a National League pennant this year. It's just a matter of who's going to outplay the other, so... Mets fans, don't hate on me. I still have faith for you guys. But unfortunately, in this case, I will go with the Braves. Let's talk about those Phillies and Nationals now, two teams that I think um, are still very, very good and are going to be hurt from the lack of an expanded postseason and the powerhouse in the West and the Dodgers and Padres. But the Phillies made some nice additions this year as well, boosted the bullpen a little bit. Again, nothing too sexy, but should be better than last year. It should put them in a good spot. Why did you have the Phillies over the Nationals?
1: Well, look, the bottom line here does come back to that bullpen. They added Archie Bradley. They added Brandon Kinsler to name a couple of the additions to the back end. Their bullpen, if their bullpen was even average last year, we've talked about this, they would have made the playoffs. Their offense was very good. They brought back all their pizzas for their offense. Gregorius is back. Real Muto is back. They still have Harper. They still have Hoskins there. I think their offense is going to be very good. Boehm had a very good year last year as well. He'll be locked in at third base. Segura there in the middle of the infield as well. I think center field maybe is a little bit of a concern for them. Hazley, I think will end up winning that job. That should be an interesting spot to keep an eye on. But their offense is very good. They have solid options in almost every position on the field. And look, their bullpen is better, so that's why I have them over the Nationals. This is more for me about the Nationals being very shaky than the Phillies being great. I have the Phillies probably winning about 84 games or so, maybe 85 if they're lucky. That's just because the rest of the division, the rest of the league, is going to be very difficult for them to compete in, in my opinion. They didn't make enough strides in their bullpen. Their rotation still has some question marks. I think a guy to keep an eye on is Zach Eflin in the third spot in the rotation. He had very solid numbers last year and has been improving throughout his career, so He's a guy that'll have to step up even more this year. They're back into the rotation, has some concerns. They have some good arms, some good talent. A guy like Vince Velasquez, if he takes a step forward, it seems like they've been waiting on him to take a step forward for a while now. But, you know, the Phillies have a little upside for me, but this third spot more came down to the fact that Nationals are shaky.
0: Definitely, and I know you've been a big big talker on Patrick Corbin and him and his question marks going into next season so I'll let you talk on that a little bit but I think if you look at their entire rotation as a whole there are some concerns just with question marks and you know I said the Mets have question marks I think you know that's question marks but still a very dominant rotation I think the Nationals have some real concerns to think about here because one Strasburg did not stay healthy last year we all know that he struggled to stay healthy in his entire career John Lester is nothing close to the pitcher he once was Max Scherzer Three seventy RA ERA is not bad, don't get me wrong, but he is getting older, and there's a question mark there. I still think he'll be good, don't get me wrong, but I don't think it's going to be Cy Young, Max Scherzer, and then Patrick Corbin. I'll let you bring up the cast numbers if you want, but they didn't support him and haven't really supported him the last couple of years. Um, so I think the rotation, which has been said to be a strong suit for the Nationals, uh, everything has to go right, in my opinion, if they're going to make the playoffs, and I just don't see that happening, unfortunately, for them.
1: Yeah, and you basically took the words out of my mouth there. The rotation was supposed to be the strong suit of the Nationals, but they have a ton of question marks. Like you said, Scherzer with his age. I do believe Scherzer will bounce back. He's just a pure competitor and a guy who's just got so much talent, a future Hall of Famer. Strasburg, again, is supposed to be the number two starter, but he didn't even really pitch at all last year. When he did, it wasn't pretty. He had some serious arm issues. So he's supposed to be back healthy, but if that's your number two guy that you're going to be banking heavily on, I'm not sure that that's too promising. Corbin here, let's look at the numbers, StatCast. I brought it up just as you're saying that. Exit velocity, 12th percentile, 15th in hard hit percentage. He got rocked last year. Expected ERA, 26th percentile. Expected batting average, 9th, slugging 19th. All very, very low percentiles there. The fastball velocity ranked 16th. That's been declining. It took a steep decline last year and you know the results showed up there. He had low fastball spin curve spin was down the only things he rated above average were the barrel percentage he was 57th percentile for that which isn't great and he didn't walk a lot of guys he was throwing a lot of strikes and getting hit very hard that's not a great combo so it's concerning to me he's only 31 years old but for a guy who had some arm issues earlier in his career to see this sharp decline in fastball velocity and him getting hit hard is not very promising. So I hope for Corbin that he turns it around and maybe the, the shortened season combined with the extended uh, offseason for him will help him out a little bit. But it's not promising. And that's the top three in the national rotation. The rotation has been highly touted. And besides the top three who, like we said, are, are major question marks at this stage, maybe besides Scherzer, uh, the bottom of the rotation isn't pretty. Lester, like I said, really isn't going to be turning it around at this stage of his career unless he becomes a totally different pitcher. And Eric Fetty is protected to be the fifth starter. Maybe Joe Ross is in there. Maybe Austin Voth, I think, got some starts there last year. But for a team that's supposed to have the rotation as the strong suit, I think that's especially concerning. If you look to the lineup, sure, they have Juan Soto and Trey Turner, two of the best players in the National League. So that's a bright spot for them. But the rest of their lineup has question marks. They brought over Josh Bell, who's supposed to be a major acquisition. He struggled last year. He played very well in 2019 in the first half, struggled in the second half, struggled in 2020. So it's hard to project a lot of great things for him this year. Kyle Schwarber, I do believe, will bounce back, but you're going to need more than four above-average bats in the lineup combined with a rotation that has a lot of question marks. If you want it to be above 500, I don't believe the Nationals will be above 500 this year. I certainly wouldn't bet any savings on it.
0: Me too. I'm on the same boat. The back end of their bullpen's not terrible. Obviously, adding Brad Hand and uh, Will Harris has obviously always been a very dependable guy. Daniel Hudson too, uh, but I just don't think it's enough, especially given the fact that. About what is it, 47 percent or something like that of your games are against your division mates, and this is the most competitive division in baseball. It's going to be very difficult for them. And again, like I said, what's going to be so hard for a team even like the Phillies, who again I think if they were in the National League Central, I think their playoff hopes are so much higher, is if you're depending on a wild card spot, which is most likely going to be the case. You have either the Mets or the Braves to compete with, and then one of the two of the Dodgers and the Padres as well and then maybe somehow a central team sneaks in too so it's going to be very very hard unfortunately difficult timing uh, and just clearly the Braves and Mets are bit
1: yeah absolutely Max and if you look at the Marlins in this division they have some interesting young pitching which I think is promising for them in the future but their lineup is lackluster to be quite honest and they have some interesting bats Corey Dickerson maybe if he plays well Jesus Aguilar if he plays well but The rest of the teams, as we mentioned, you know, I crapped on the Nationals for a little bit, but the bottom line is they still have some decent players. The rotation still has some potential good talent in there with Strasburg, Scherzer, and Corbin, so I can't quite put the Marlins above the Nationals, but if all things go wrong for the Nationals, the Marlins could potentially surpass them in this division. I think if you were to bank on the depth of pitching, the Marlins probably have a better depth with all their young arms coming up, so... It should be interesting to keep an eye on them moving forward within the next few years. All right, that's going to wrap it up, everybody. We thank you so much for joining Matanzaris episode one of season three on March 1st, the anniversary of the first ever Matanzaris episodes. That's something exciting for us. We're so happy that all of you guys have been joining us for the past year, and we hope you all have a fantastic week and enjoy spring training baseball.